Welcome to the Born Together podcast. I'm Techie Quay. I'm many things. The one I'm enjoying most is being mum to my daughter Ava. This podcast is about the common experience of motherhood. It is a contemporary archive of lives lived as mothers as well as being ourselves. I hope you may find connection and community in these shared stories. Thanks for coming on this journey with me and happy listening. This week, I'm lucky enough to get to talk to Zaina Bates, who opens up about her birth stories, her first that was deeply traumatic, and her second birth that provided great healing. Zainab is a principal researcher unpacking and exposing the condition of breastfeeding aversion, and provides here a very considered and imperative conversation centered on both our experiences of breastfeeding aversion. I'll be taking September off from the podcast, but I have some amazing interviews lined up for you all in October. And I just wanted to say thank you for coming on this journey with me so far. It's been a real privilege to get to share these stories and connect with you all. Please do subscribe to the podcast so you can be sure not to miss me when I'm back. Enjoy today's episode. Happy listening and I'll be seeing you soon. Hello, Zainab. Thanks for coming and joining me for the podcast. Oh, I'm so happy to be here, Techie. Thank you. Oh, no trouble at all. I'm going to be picking your brain about lots of things. So I'll be thanking you by the end of this, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, Zainab, would you like to introduce yourself for the listeners and maybe uh, give us a bit about uh, your family and your life at the moment? Yeah, so I'm Zainab Yates. I recently wrote a book about breastfeeding aversion and I'm actually a bioethicist, so I do biomedical ethics in the day, so to speak. I um, have a speciality in research ethics, and that's where my field is. But, of course, when you enter motherhood, uh, everything becomes mingled in, and that certainly happened with me. So I, I took all my ethics and my questions over to my t- troubles and challenges when I became a mother and that happened about six years ago six and a half and I had a young young wee lad a boy named Khalid and then two years just under two years after that I had a girl called Sarah and yeah the first was um we were planning him in a sense we spoke a lot about him and prepared and my second Sarah was very unexpected and I'm not quite sure how <laughs> she happened. <laughs> Shall we jump in then and talk a bit about the your first pregnancy with your son? Yeah, so I was very, um, I, I guess I'd say privileged in the sense that I had a very caring husband and I was able to take a maternity leave year in my PhD and I was able to essentially be present in the pregnancy. Um, I didn't have that many complications. So again, I was very lucky and I feel very privileged. I, I did find the nausea in the first um, trimester very difficult and I mismanaged that. Uh, I overate extensively and put on quite a bit of weight when to try and manage the nausea. But I didn't really have much of a support network for pregnant pregnant pregnancy knowledge, so to speak. So I, I just I just kind of chatted about it with my husband and did what I thought I could. It was generally I I think okay. It was during the latter part of the pregnancy I struggled because I have um, have polio so I've got a disability and my little leg um I have paralysis in one leg she couldn't really cope with the the, the sheer weight mm. <laughs> and then because of that I I wanted to seek some further information on if if there was going to be any difficulty giving birth but I was assured that you know I would be okay I wasn't high risk in any sense and the pregnancy I think I was I thought at least I was prepared. <laughs> <laughs> I think having that time off, you feel like, yeah, I've done it all, or here we go, I know what I'm doing. 
Yeah, really, I, I, I did. I think I even meal prepped a little bit because I realised the first few weeks would be a bit challenging. But um, yeah, it was a it was a time of reflection. I, I looking back, I wish I'd honoured my my free time and my choices more because. It's never really been the same since, you know. <laughs> no, I I think that if anyone's pregnant listening, I wish just in the last trimester when I had more time just to actually relax and be present and enjoy almost doing nothing. I, I, yeah, mm-hmm. I look back and think that would be so nice sometimes. Oh, yeah, I wish I would have relished in it. But I just say I, I watched a lot of I watched a lot of shows while while basically breastfeeding because I had difficulty when he was born and um you know it's during the time of watching them I realized that there is a certain portrayal of motherhood and it's it's often without the child <laughs> so I did notice in sitcoms like Friends and um very Americanized ones they, they generally depict the mother as being pretty much the same after she gives birth and I wondered whether that had a kind of subconscious effect on women you know they just uh, they just go about their normal business because that's what you think you ought to be able to do after watching other people on the screen do it you know but it's just not the case <laughs> it's really really not the case especially of a child who won't be put down and you know we when we enter motherhood, we don't know what kind of character we're going to get. And so some of them need to be with you almost all the time. Others are a little bit more independent, even as a baby. But you just you just don't know uh, what, what they need. So No. And I, like you said before, how you maybe didn't have a community around you and not, I guess, in my life, I didn't have a lot of close friends with babies who I saw frequently and really got an insight into what their lives were like. So you are flying blind um, mm. with with little knowledge. Um, and then, like you said, like it, there's all these representations on TV or magazines. And I definitely felt at the start, you know, I didn't have lots of time to try and read up on things because you're just busy with the day to day. You're just tired as well. <laughs> it's a lot yeah. to recover from. Um, and yeah. how, Dana, how was your birth experience then, if you don't mind sharing? You said there was some complications. Well, yeah, there, there wasn't anticipated complications that once you enter into a kind of medicalized setting, yeah, you you increase the chances of having medical interventions. It's just that's what the statistics and research shows. But of of course, I didn't know that, and so I just kind of put my wholehearted trust in in the system. And unfortunately, there was just a kind of you know catalog of errors, which ultimately led to a supposed. Um, emergency c-section and unfortunately I think the um, what what I consider the lack of oxytocin rush that that happened post-surgery because I I didn't give birth naturally or vaginally I suppose you'd call it first time around I am I also didn't have the the rush of oxytocin which Mm. can happen does happen in most women who give birth fashionably without intervention and that for me is the starting point of the lack of bonding I had and the struggle I had to enter into motherhood so you know if I'm going to use the technical terms from everything I know now six years later uh, essentially there was obstetric violence this is where healthcare professionals did not um, seek appropriate consent um, there were interventions that I did not agree to or did not know about. I didn't know about the side effects of those. Um, I was also under a little bit of duress, I'd say, and a pressure to have an epidural. I think I was I was definitely asked in multiple figures whether I wanted one, and I kept saying that I didn't. <laughs> but in the end, they kind of gave me one. I think, yeah, you know, they just needed to get me on in case I needed a C-section and um, obviously 
having a, a major abdominal surgery or otherwise known as a c-section uh, without kind of being aware of that being a possibility uh, is rather a shock to the system and that i think for me ultimately meant i had a rather traumatic birth looking back at it that took me many years kind of process Zainab, I'm sorry uh, that was your experience. I think it really helps, like you said, six years later, and now you understand, I guess, the, you can use the right language to diagnose what happened to you or the treatment or lack of treatment and care that you were given. Mm. Um, I think it definitely takes a lot of space, doesn't it, to just be ready to dive back into that yeah, I mean, at the beginning, I had no idea what was going on. You know, I had those people just happy that we were both alive, essentially. That was, the, that was the undercurrent of all the comments. So in many ways, women are not allowed no. to feel hurt and angry. They're not allowed to feel um, that there's been some dishonesty or they've been treated unjustly because they and their baby have been... You've got uh, a happy baby. There's nothing to complain about. Exactly. Yeah. But so, I mean, you definitely are in a vulnerable place and after you give birth. And so you're, you're not necessarily going to be in a position to kind of fight the waves, uh, the normal societal waves. You just kind of go along with it. But obviously there's anger and hurt that's trapped. And so that tends to come out <laughs> essentially. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like it just was such a big impact to your early stages of motherhood for those of you who maybe don't follow Zainab you I guess it's safe to say specialize in breastfeeding aversion I don't know anyone else who's talking about it was that your experience then with your son well I I come from a kind of traditional background and so I always assumed like my mother did I would give birth naturally and breastfeed for two years because as a Muslim that's just what you're told and you just kind of know it and so I never kind of batted an eyelid about that it was just the other things you know what color was the cot yes. uh, would would we would we get vaccinations or not and that kind of topic was a big deal for me because I, I have vaccine induced polio so you know I wanted to talk about it because you know it seemed like an important topic but what happened was actually breastfeeding became very much the central focus of the conversation um, with everyone because it was very difficult for me to, um, yeah, just to, to breastfeed, to be honest. I found it difficult in the beginning. It was painful. It was um, challenging. It was unexpected. There was a whole myriad of kind of different problems I didn't expect to feel the way I did about it and then you know a few months in I, I I got very severe aversion where where every time I was breastfeeding I uh it triggered very negative emotions in me and but as I've been brought up you know birth and breastfeeding is just the way forward I kind of just mm. carried on doing it and persevered because Essentially, I think I thought I failed at birth, but at least that is what my body was telling me. Hello, you failed at birth. The natural process didn't happen. You're kind of like this subconscious thoughts of being a failure. Well, I'm damn well going to succeed at breastfeeding, you know. Zainab, so I just, exactly, yeah. That was exactly it for me. I'm getting a bit <laughs> emotional because that's I had failed and I was like, well, I have to make this work now. I have, so, this is, this is, I have to redeem myself. Exactly. Yeah. I'm not a mother if I can't do this right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Exactly. And I think it was a strange thing because for most of my life, I hadn't really thought of my body in relation to being, I don't know, something that can carry a baby and nourish a baby. And then all mm. of a sudden, I don't know, there was just a lot of learning. And I think also forgiving it of myself. And I probably could have been kinder to myself, but it's really hard mm -hmm. at that point in time. Yeah, you can't, there's no space for you to mourn or grieve or forgive or process um, because it is a very overwhelming time. I mean, uh, who's that lady? She wrote a, a paper called um, Matrescence. She yes. wanted to name the 
yeah, the change into motherhood akin to adolescence because of how vast and how rapid and how monumental change is. So that in itself is a rite of passage, you know, tribal peoples and every culture mostly had some kind of tradition around that rite of passage, but we, we don't really tend to have that in the modern age. And if that wasn't even enough, we have to deal with everything to do with kind of patriarchal medicalized interventions and these kind of problems um, that really rob us of that. That yeah, no, new um, distrust in our bodies from the beginning, isn't there? Exactly. Which, if we didn't have, we we wouldn't. We'd say, actually, no. Actually, no. Um, I know this is the process. Mm. I know that uh, you know nature doesn't fit into a twenty-four hour window, a yeah. clock window, and I'm going to let it the process go. And if anything does go untoward, then you know you're there, but no, I don't want you to do this, and no, I don't think that's appropriate, no, and da, da, da. But, you know, who has that Who has that um, confidence when, exactly as you said, you, you're kind of told to mistrust your bodies from the beginning. It's, not, it's just not going to happen. It's not the natural consequence of it is that you'll hand over your trust to someone else because that's what you've been primed to do. Yeah, they're the professionals and they're the ones who know and I think there's I think there's a lot of fear as well around birth of if something goes wrong and holding that space for us to feel capable and just to trust in our bodies. Um, it's, yeah. yeah, it's a space I think we slowly are maybe trying to reclaim, but it's not something that's going to happen tomorrow. <laughs> mm. So I actually took as probably many women do when they have an, another child I took so many steps to to try and stop what happened the first time happen again if that makes sense and um it must be so different the second time you've been through it and I guess also there must be a lot of I don't know would it be correct to say a bit of fear as well going into it again and thinking all that had happened the first time Mm. working to stop it from happening but just yeah I guess it's you know more the second time around so I think in that kind can come a lot of power but also perhaps a little bit of fear mm. yeah I mean I was definitely I, I would go so far to say I was pretty distraught when I found out I was pregnant because just because simply how traumatizing and difficult it was to enter into motherhood but after kind of processing those emotions I did kind of go on a bit of field trip to in a way prevent it from happening again you know I sought I sought out a consultant in the hospital who would essentially allow me to do a home birth and if the listeners you know if you don't know uh, it's apparently very risky to try and give birth vaginally after having a c-section it's called a v-birth um, a vaginal birth after c-section is the acronym um, and because I'm well read and I actually read hundreds of research papers and journals a year I have to sometimes thousands for my um, research ethics committee I was well aware that the risks weren't as uh, as they are portrayed to an individual mother and so I kind of had to persuade a consultant that I knew the risks and that I needed him to sign off. And then I finally got given to a home birth midwife team. And so I felt much more grounded in that care. And I prepared for a, you know, a pool water birth at home and all this, that and the other. And I think um, amongst other things, I, I did actually, I did actually submit to the process of birth whereas in the first experience I wanted to control the birth whereas even though I was being very preparatory with my second birth inside on a on a kind of higher spiritual level I yeah I, I tried to submit to whatever the outcome was because you know, I, I realized I was so angry at having a C-section because it was the least thing I expected to happen. I mean, I didn't even, it wasn't even on my radar. And um, I think it also sounds like you weren't actively part of that choice 
it wasn't it wasn't an informed choice by you at all i would yeah i think i actually do i just i yeah exactly i mean you're that, that's kind of like a human right you know having informed choices and um consenting to things so and it also i mean when else would it be okay for someone to do things like that to your body without your consent you know like it how in this birth arena is it deemed appropriate that you can coerce people into this or I don't know I guess that's a whole other discussion maybe for another day well they I had a very um I had a I during the process of trying to understand my birth and my pain after about a year of giving birth the first time I actually went to have a debrief they call it a debrief with the consultant midwife so what happens is that you request your medical notes and they have a copy of your medical notes and they talk through what happened and unfortunately I left feeling even worse and it was she was particularly condescending and it was just horrible what I did do is I told my family I need you to pay pay for me to have a debrief with an independent midwife to you know actually help me instead of try to defend their decisions and the first thing that in the process of the discussion the, the independent midwife asked me was um did you have your c-section in the morning or the evening and i said in the evening and she said was it around 9 30 and i said yes it was 9 32 p.m and i had no idea how she would know that and she said, well, actually, in that hospital, it's, you know, that's not uncommon that they'll push you to have a C-section because that's when the shift change happens. So essentially, they wanted to go home. <laughs> and that's why I had a C-section. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's shocking. It's just shocking and unacceptable. Um, I think one of the things that really made me so angry was these people get to go home um, you know, at their 9.30 clock off and they might sort of say to their family, I had this really annoying woman today and then they'll forget about it by the morning. But this is your birth experience that's going yeah. to stay with you forever. Yeah, I can, I I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know whether I'm plagued or um, whether I'm gifted with the ability to empathise with absolutely everyone, but... I owe a lot to the medical industry and I have a lot of compassion for those in in the healthcare industry because they are just so swamped and so stressed and also misinformation is given to them as well. So I found myself conflicted because I I remember looking into the eyes of one gynecologist lady. And I remember in my gut, I I was saying, I don't want you to touch me. Because I could see in her eyes, she was angry and she was bloodshot and she was extremely tired. I mean, you could tell in her face, she was just, she just needed to sleep for a week without anyone to bother her. But of course, me being compliant, and I didn't say, you know, um, could, I, could I have someone else do my sleep? And instead, I just endured a very kind of painful, invasive um, examination by this this lady. But uh, just I, I don't know what to do with that. I mean, they they struggle too. But at the end of the day, they have a duty of care. We we are in a vulnerable position, and so ultimately, it relies on them to not abuse their position of authority. I guess that's where the line comes. Yeah, I think it's, I think my, um, what is it, my logical self definitely can understand all that they go through. But then in just, yeah, I think in dealing with my grief around my own birth experience and, you know, I might not have another birth and that's what I'm left with um, due to the impact of other people. It's, I think that's the thing too. It's a huge job, the people who, who support women um, and par- and people to become parents and birth. It's a huge job with such, like you said, huge responsibility and duty of care, and they're not supported. So I guess in that sense, they've been failed as well. 
Well, I cover some of this in my book about how we go on about the biological norm and, and holding that to a gold standard. You know, birthing naturally is the biological norm, and ipso facto, that's the best way to do it. And breastfeeding mm. is the biological norm, and so ipso facto, that's the best way to do it. And it's, you know, it's brilliant, wonderful, rah, rah, rah. But we, we really need to accept and acknowledge that we do not live in an age that allows the biological norm. We have artificial lights, we have artificial screens, we have artificial living arrangements, we have everything is artificial. Most of what many people eat is artificial, the food is artificial. We don't, we have artificial time. We don't allow for the, the biological normal. We don't allow for our menses. You know how our women, our womenly menses and rhythms and routines mean that we have different hormones and productivity levels in the month but we don't we don't have that we have a destructive day of the month and we have to be productive and systematic every single day because we have a single month and time it, you can't you can't not have a clash there will be a clash that's so true isn't it even i was talking to someone the other day and she was really worried about um, her breech baby and just sort of thinking about how just our lifestyles you know everything um, lots of things have changed and that's so true isn't it like mm. we're living in a, in a world that doesn't support that natural uh, natural I don't even know state of being and yeah. it's so managed and I guess in that sense we shouldn't be surprised that birth has become so managed but how did you go with your home birth then was that I hope a wonderful experience that what's the word I'm looking for Feel. Feel. a feeling experience uh well I didn't end up having a home birth uh, <laughs> yeah I I uh another one of my preparatory steps was to not tell anyone I was in labor so I was expecting that week and um, I just so happened to have my my sister-in-law my mother-in-law come and visit us and I was with my mom and I would just kind of go out of the room and do my waves or whatever, my contractions. And I'd come back in as if nothing happened. And um, I told my husband a bit later on as they got a bit more frequent. And then um, I had actually called on a friend to be a birth partner. She's actually a registered midwife, but I only ever really knew her as a kind of friend. And so she was going to be present, and then the home birth team would be called when my contractions were so and so apart, centimeters apart, apart. And then what happened was I just became very tired. I just started to get more and more tired. The contractions got closer together, and I basically said a prayer because, you know, I was so broken with the first experience. I just handed it over to him upstairs in my religion. I just said, you know, I've done everything I can do and I'm submitting to the process and it's not in my hands and um, it's in your hands and I, I hand it over essentially. And then uh, there was a kind of pop inside and my water broke about 30 seconds later and um, my friend, the, the midwife, my birth partner, uh, checked and said there was light light meconium in the water and so I was like okay I'm accepting this as part of the plan this is the process this is what's best for us I just grabbed the bag my husband got the car and we went into the hospital as we walked in uh, basically the lady consultant said um, you know she essentially said give her 15 minutes more to later otherwise we're going to do a c-section <laughs> um, and then what happened is I just went full steam ahead. I um, it wasn't really in my hands. I started, I started, I mean, screaming a kind of voice that came out of me. I never even knew what happened. It never happened with the first um, birthing experience. And uh, I think it was about an hour or two later I'd given birth. And it, I mean, it went so fast after she gave me that kind of. 15 minutes I was just like okay fine I'm gonna have a conception you know what can I do there's nothing I can do so in that way I didn't get the home birth but I got to birth and I, I do really 
feel on many levels it did heal me because I always knew I could do it. Does that make sense? I always felt I could do it. I just felt I was robbed of the opportunity. Um, so I found it a healing process, yeah. And when you met your daughter, did you find the oxytocin rush that was absent with the birth of your son? Was that there with her? Oh, gosh, I can't tell you. It's like I've had a lot of drugs because um, I've had a lot of surgery um, during childhood and adolescence. But this feeling of euphoria um, after being kind of on the essentially what felt like you know, the death's door on the brink of exhaustion and in a very, very powerful uh, sensations, whether you call it pain or discomfort or waves or whatever, and then going into this level of being basically on a complete high. Yeah, it was completely different. Uh, you know, I was like, hello, you know, you're great. Uh, anything you need, I'll give it to you. Aren't you cute? You know, I think I, I love you. Well, I didn't have any of that in the beginning with my first you know, heartbreak. I'll be really honest with you. Went through my head was like, what the F is this? Um, and I can attribute that now, looking back, uh, basically the lack of oxytocin and the violation. You, know, you have a physical bodily violation, so how are you supposed to react? That's not, that's not the best scenario to be handed to a human being. And then be told that you have to love them more than anything and they're going to need you more than anyone's ever before. It's a lot. And then, Zainab, did you suffer from aversion with your daughter then after all of that, um, the huge emotions and rushes? <laughs> I did, but not until much later um, because, you know, forewarned is forearmed. I'd have a lot more opportunity to understand what was happening in the breastfeeding relationship and I also trained to become a breastfeeding peer supporter. I did many many hours supporting other women and I had essentially a tribe. I, I was in a, a borough in London at the time and they, they, they were well known for having an amazing peer support system and I had so many women on offer to, to help me. You know I had an early diagnosis of tongue tie with my daughter I had it cut I had plenty of opportunity for positioning and attachment support and also reassurance and I had a lot of knowledge so aversion did hit but not until later not until you know she was nine it hit very badly when she was nine months old um, and then I had to get specialist support might mean because the nights just became incredibly um, difficult. I, might, I managed to carry on breastfeeding during the day, but every feed was just uncomfortable and I had a version of every feed. So, yeah. Would it be right? I just realised we probably also haven't actually defined what breastfeeding aversion is. Um, for me, I'm... I don't know. I think one of the things I find interesting is you sort of have to diagnose yourself. I sort of had to do my own research and say this is what fits for what I'm feeling. Maybe I just need to hand over to you to actually give us a, a, a solid definition. <laughs> well, I don't... So the difficulty is with any research is that you have to narrow down your research questions and often the participants or the cohort that you're looking in in order to understand the phenomena. And when I first did it, I kind of left it open. Um, when I first did my research study on it, I kind of just asked women what, you know, how they felt when they were breastfeeding. You know, did you, what did you feel? And then well, the array of comments I got back were just so much more than I anticipated. Um, but in order to make sense of them, I would group them into themes and categories, if that made sense. Yep. And it would. And then ultimately, in order to explain it, I understood the phenomena as basically breastfeeding triggering particular negative emotion and intrusive thoughts, um, but included things like an overwhelming urge to delatch and the urge to run away, like feeling like a prisoner. Um, 
yeah, a very kind of visceral bodily reaction to. Yeah, you have you can have itchy itchy sensations, crawling sensations. You can feel angry, agitated, irritated, frustrated, um, just generally very aggressive as well. Um, so all of the things that you don't normally associate with breastfeeding, essentially, and because because so little is known about women's bodies and women's needs overall in the whole world of research um it's actually all just very new we we have the dysphoric milk detection reflex i was going to ask about dina as well because they sort of you can have both at the same time um Mm -hmm. and to differentiate the two as well it's but it seems to be is it right with dima that the feelings fade after a while so with dysphoric milk rejection reflex, it's kind of understood as being a medically diagnosed condition, whereas aversion at the moment, it isn't really. So DEMA is attributed to either a, a, a kind of malfunction, so to speak, in your um, particular hormones. So one theory is about prolactin and another theory is about oxytocin. And essentially it's to do with your ejection reflex, which happens um, in the beginning part, mostly, of the breastfeeding session. So the feelings attributed to that hormonal um, pathway that's not really firing properly um, tend to happen just when the milk ejection reflex kicks in. And so after the reflex, <laughs> yeah. yeah, or let down, so to speak. So that's one way of telling. And another way of telling is that either the emotions can be very different uh, you can have the kind of bottomless pit of your tummy. You can feel hopeless, the despair, this kind of this hollow feeling. You're not sure how to put your finger on. But again, I don't. I mean, what I personally think, and what I've written about in my book, is that I think that if you struggle with dysphoric milk rejection reflex, that I think you're more likely to experience aversion because of the challenges you. You face when breastfeeding but if you experience aversion that doesn't really be at risk of dysphoric milk rejection if that's how i like to see it um but again you know i don't i don't rule out i don't rule out some research in a few years time superseding mine and kind of changing the discussion because we know more about it the truth is we don't know enough i mean in a way not to I guess diminish your work but it would be nice to have just huge bodies of work and actually different points of view where we can have robust conversations and greater information about it wouldn't it exactly yeah like exactly I mean in one way I'm hoping that that exactly happens because I've allowed I've allowed some academic and clinical research to start taking place now because there's something to justify starting the research because I have yeah. a paper and a book so if in a few years time there's someone on board and actually turns it in its head completely and finds out what the answers are I'll be more than happy to be like well I was I was wrong or well, my knowledge was limited or well it helped as far as it could but this this is much, much better and that is where we need to be really because at the moment we're just you know fumbling in the dark in comparison to other other conditions and needs women have I think that's it we're very much on the cusp and I think too I know I sometimes I've popped up a few posts on Instagram just talking about my own experience and I was only able to articulate it through your research so it's really yeah, it really means a lot to be talking to you because my experience would have been so much harder and lonely. Mm. And I think one of the key things as well is understanding that those of us who suffer with breastfeeding aversion, most of us want to keep doing it. <laughs> it's yeah. like a few people have said, you know, we'll just stop. And it's like, well, no, that's not that's not the the remedy for this and that's not understanding it like a lot of us in our minds we understand the benefits of, of breastfeeding or like we were saying for ourselves like we wanted to try and recover a little bit of our own 
belief in our bodies and cells but there's so many reasons why people want to breastfeed and it's just going through aversion makes that really hard it makes it really hard to to get through the days and it was it was harder at night time I don't know if I was tired it would be a lot harder and for me it really I think I don't know if you felt the same, but I think when the oxytocin bubble started to sort of dissipate was when it really started to set in for me and it became a lot more apparent and just the anger you feel mm-hmm. breastfeeding and, you know, breastfeeding, it's shown as like really soft, gooey emotions and this mm-hmm. intimacy and tenderness. And so when you're there thinking really dark, angry thoughts about mm-hmm. your child, <laughs> while they're feeding it's oh it's a hard thing to process and I just think there must be a lot of women out there going through that and Mm. you could be really worried you could be so worried like what's wrong with me what's going on I obviously can't love my child enough or people out there who won't have the information we don't have all the answers but I think to begin a conversation is the most important thing I just feel like my heart breaks. I mean, my heart breaks for myself because my heart breaks for you. I just, it's just so unnecessary and it's just so difficult and challenging. It shouldn't be that way, unfortunately. It, it, it is. I mean, you know, Kathy Kendall Tackett and Moberg, um, they've done a lot of research and work into maternal mental health and in itself. And, they, they, they always start any papers by saying, you know, oxytocin is there in a way to make motherhood and breastfeeding tolerable. They enjoy it because actually without it, like you said, as it starts to dissipate, you can have the other normal emotions override it, essentially. And so that's uh, something uh, I cover in my book just to get some answers for mother's queries and questions. It's... If you wonder why it's so difficult at night, well, I posit that it's because of the nocturnal adrenaline and the stress. Mm. And that is designed to make you want to move. It's designed to have the flight or flight response, the aggressiveness in order to get... awareness. Exactly. And that's kind of the... It's completely an oxytocin antagonist. So while you're supposed to feel this lovingness, you feel the direct opposite because what is actually a natural, normal response? You, you know, you're in a state of flight or fright. You know, it's nighttime. You need to be left alone to sleep. So the oxytocin is not really working as much as it should. Unfortunately, you're getting annoyed. <laughs> then your nocturnal adrenaline kicks in and then boom, you're, you're like essentially flooded with this thing that's trying to make you move and get out and do something and, you know, take back your power and assert your autonomy as a human being but you can't because you can't be trapped under a baby (laughs) what do you expect to happen the darkness will come from that and for me for me i i completely understand why these yeah i just oh god i could i could rant forever about it just to i wish i could go back and shake myself and say you're you're not mad It's normal. There are millions of other women going through this at this exact same point in time, in the middle of the night, by themselves. You're not crazy. You're not. Uh, You're not failing at this. You're not a bad mother. I feel sad for my past self, and you know, like I still now am breastfeeding Ava just at night time. And for me, I have to count. Like it's still something that we're working through. Hopefully working through in terms of like coming to the end of our journey Mm. Um, but it's not something that has gone away for me yeah Um, but I think for me it's like it's it's four minutes a day (laughs) it's finding ways and it's going to be different for everyone to manage it but I know I'd be there and I'd I'd have to de-latch her and I'd just have to you know try and calm myself down Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know okay you can do this and psych yourself up again and sitting there like banging my feet or hitting my fists or swearing really loudly in my head or Mm -hmm. lots of yeah or a pillow or digging in your nails nails. yeah 
or pinching yourself to stop yourself from reacting or I mean all of these I mean the feet the the mental and physical emotional feet we have to go through to keep breastfeeding is just I mean for me it's it's something I think only could be expressed through art mm-hmm. I, I wish someone could do a piece of artwork to show the 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 the, the, the tat. I mean, you said four minutes a day, but four minutes a day is four minutes too long for me when I had my version. Good lord, it's so hard. I commend you for doing it. I just, I just, well, yeah. I hope it. I hope it gets easier for people just in terms of knowing that they're not by themselves. Because I think, yeah, without your work and words and sources of help and information it would have been such a different journey and I think there just needs to be with breastfeeding you know people say oh it can be difficult but it's very much talked about like your nipples will be sore and there might be the latch or you might get um, mastitis or something we don't really talk about the emotional impacts of breastfeeding and the hormones and Mm. I just think we need to get better at talking about that so much and I think Mm. we prepare so well not everybody but there's a culture of preparing a lot for the birth um, and I definitely support that but then breastfeeding has the potential to go on much longer than the birth and we're not prepared for it in the same way yeah absolutely absolutely um yeah there's such a gap in knowledge and once you enter into motherhood it's it's almost just a tiny bit too late because you the knowledge helps you shift your expectations and often when your expectations shift and they match your reality you can find it easier to cope mm-hmm. but it's process of shifting your expectations to match your reality that all humans struggle with not just in motherhood but the 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 unique thing about motherhood is that you don't have that time if you have another human being that you're responsible for you're imminently aware that you're affecting and so it's just the preparation would be so important you know it's just just knowing that they can like you know they might hit 12 months old or 18 months old and then they're suddenly not eating anything and they're only breastfeeding day and night I mean just knowing that that's what happens with some nurslings can stop you from going mad because you do not expect to be breastfeeding more when they're older than when they're a newborn you just don't expect it why would you expect it it doesn't seem logical nobody's told you either (laughs) (laughs) No one's talked about it. So, yeah, you would. You'd think, I don't know, like, what's wrong? This isn't right. And I think, too, then the, I think one of the biggest things is it's that cyclical nature of this and that you're talking about. We're really tired. You're not sleeping. The darkness comes, like, the adrenaline comes, mm-hmm. maybe latches on. You feel negative about it. Mm-hmm. And it sort of, you know, it feeds into so many things where it's hard to get off that wheel isn't Mm -hmm. it it just sort of continues on whereas yeah how do you sort of actually say you know what I need to take that step back I need to get the sleep I need to do a little bit of reading to contextualize what's going on and yeah like you said the expectations of a situation versus the reality and there's just not the space to do that when you're in it it's yeah exactly manage well there's certainly little to no space to do it if you're alone often a big determining factor in being able to kind of override your own when you're when you're ruminating again and again in your cycle and your story is when there's someone else there and so often women are just kind of breastfeeding by themselves looking after children by themselves day and night and it's it's, it's a lonely process. Yeah, you don't have another adult in there to step in, touch you on the shoulder, kind of take the take the baby or your nursling away for a walk to help them fall asleep while you basically, you know, beat up a pillow because you're so furious. That's what needs to happen every night. And that's, I, you know, I would, I think that if I was in the, I don't know, the 18th century and I was living at home with all my brothers and sisters and my mom and my grandma and everything 
And I think if I had children, I wouldn't be the one breastfeeding them, if I'm honest. I think it would be one of my sisters who found it much easier, or my mum who breastfed all seven of her children, or maybe even my grandmother, because it wasn't uncommon for them. I would just be one of those women who didn't breastfeed for long, or because I just, <laughs> I just, I just, I don't know, bloody hell, it's really hard, it's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard. Um, and I think that's maybe, yeah, that's something we need to say more openly. Mm. Um, yeah, it's really hard. <laughs> oh dear. And how did your journeys breastfeeding with both your babies end? Was it just sort of a relief when you came to the end of it all? Um. I find it difficult to talk um I still find it difficult to talk about, I think, but it's such a such a funny thing, isn't it? You you kind of hate hated it, but you were sad when it ended as well. Yeah. I said essentially I was heart heartbroken when it ended, but at the same time it was all I wanted. It was a very strange position to be in. And I, again I attribute that to the oxytocin because it's the oxytocin that was repeatedly released that gives you that very, very strong bond, but also that habitual practice. You keep going back, you keep going back, you keep wanting to do it. That's what oxytocin does, essentially. And there's new research to show that it can also bind you to fearful, um, upsetting experiences and make you fearful of future ones and things like that. So it's a very interesting hormone we have around our our body but i i i found a lot of answers when i read about oxytocin because i i was still upset when when i had to wean my son but i really i mean i fervently hated breastfeeding because it was painful and i had aversion and it was horrible but essentially i fell pregnant and i didn't know and i became very very kind of poorly because of I think my disability and my weight and things and um I think I just I had to I'd lessened the feeds anyway because with aversion you end up lessening the feeds um but when when I did fall pregnant it kind of full swing I just I just stopped because I was exhausted and constantly on the floor all the time so that's how it ended um but with my daughter yeah, so the aversion kicked in, and essentially when it did kick in, it was a slow process of, of weaning, essentially, for over a year and a, a half or so. Um, but I, I'm still, yeah, I'm still very sad about it. I, again, I feel a bit robbed. <laughs> I wanted them to self-wean. <laughs> I wanted them to enjoy it, and I wanted to enjoy it myself. I was always trying to, I just doesn't ever happen so hmm. I don't know I think I'm probably in that same space at the moment where <laughs> it's, yeah, it's four hmm. minutes every day and I'm just like oh I don't know it's hard to yeah I don't, maybe it's even harder because you have all these angry thoughts and yeah I don't know but it's I'm finding it really emotional to um, come to the end of our journey as well. And just, yeah, I think I'm really fortunate in that I no longer attach my breastfeeding journey to my, the failure I felt around my birth. <laughs> and I think that makes it a lot easier, but I do feel sad. One thing I'd really worried about too was how, all of these negative things I was feeling, I, I remember being so worried they'd transfer onto my baby. Mm. And I remember even that during my pregnancy, I found it hard at times and I was always so worried. But then, I don't know, I, I've got this super happy, gorgeous little cherub. Mm -hmm. so I guess for those of you who are listening as well and sort of worried, I don't know that it's, I don't know the scientific side of it, but I don't think it's something that transfers to the babies. Not, not, not in the long term. And it's mm. so important to be able to say that because yeah. you just need hope. I mean, if you're listening and you're just in the thick of it and you feel like 
everything's wrong and there's no way out and you're full of despair. You know, I've been there. Um, there's not really anything I can say yeah. now, but certainly, yeah. you know, my rebuilding the relationship and essentially getting rid of the negative emotions in the home and in myself and things like that was the process after I stopped breastfeeding. Um, but it, it happened and I can now talk about it with my son who's six and a half years old and it it's quite amazing how resilient humans are. So human babies are incredibly resilient. I mean, the, the, there is a very interesting person. Uh, her first name, I, I write about it in the book because it's just an interesting take. Uh, Win Winnicott, uh, they, she basically, she argues that children, babies and children, they learn, they learn emotions and things like hate only from their mothers. And so there has to be instances where these emotions arise in order for them to learn and navigate them. Does that make sense? So it's a very, it's a very sensitive area to think about. Probably later on in your mothering experience, you could revisit it. But in the beginning years, you don't really want to think about that because it should be all loving and wonderful. But I, I, I just think they're amazingly resilient and I, I see them thrive despite mothers struggling so much with aversion. That was definitely something I know I've really worried about at times too, is that transference. And yeah, I guess it'll it'll be in time that maybe there'll be more research done and we can unpack it some more. But Zainab, your book's coming out this month in September. Yes. Oh, yes. It's, um, it's been a few years and in the making but I'm so happy that the work is getting out there and I'm happy for anyone to contact me if they have any more questions or queries or yeah anything really I, I just hope it helps some mothers I hope it helps healthcare practitioners I hope it helps wider society to understand the you know the spectrum of what you feel when you're breastfeeding essentially Yes, the spectrum of experience, absolutely. And how should people uh, look to reach out to you on Instagram? Is that perhaps one of the the best places? Um, I'm actually really active on on social media, so anywhere really. <laughs> we we have we have a big community on on Facebook, and uh, we have also a Facebook a closed peer to peer Facebook support group where I answer questions. And I'm on Twitter as well. Um, Instagram is a really wonderful community, though. They're very supportive and active. So I'm there as well. Some links up on um, on the website page so people can uh, find you on all these different locations. And also I might pester you for a link to your book and so people can have a look there. The publisher will ship as well worldwide, but they said Wordery is free shipping because I know there's... There's listeners from all over the world, I think, on your podcast. I hope so. Yeah, hopefully people in every corner. I'm looking, yeah, I'm going to take September off, actually, from releasing podcast episodes for those of you who are listening. But I'm also looking to extend and try and talk to mothers in places outside of the UK because I myself am not from the UK and I know there's lots of mums elsewhere who have amazing experiences to share. And I just think... I guess the whole reason I started this podcast was because the things I learned that have really helped me have been from other mothers and I think that's maybe something you've said as well it's through sort of going through motherhood and the experience I'm taking all of my past knowledge and you know the things I didn't yeah my research and I'm putting that into into motherhood we're bringing the skills we've cultivated before becoming mums and now focusing here so um, yeah, it yeah. can be so invaluable if 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 you're listening and you and you find any value in this to share it with any new mums because it's, it's so nice just to be able to talk and share essentially. Um, yeah. Especially if you don't have someone to talk and share with, be honest and open and frank about things in mothering. 
um, because it can really change your experience of it and empower you essentially. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, I think that's definitely what's helped. Um, apart from breastfeeding, I've had a really wonderful mothering experience so far. And it's definitely because of the amazing parents out there who have supported me and shared their stories. So thank you for being one of them. Oh, and thank you for inviting me. It's been amazing just to talk talk with you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Come connect with me on Instagram with the handle born underscore underscore together. I'd love to hear from you. And please do share, subscribe and rate the podcast to help it get out to a wider audience. I'd love if you could. Until next week. Bye.